in the Gospel of Luke. So if you open your Bible to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 32 is our text. Jesus had just told two parables, one about a lost sheep and one about a lost coin. Now he's going to talk about a lost son. And then he said, a certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided them his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. He would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods of the swine. No one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare? And I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion, ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight and am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. And bring the fatted calf here and kill it. And let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. But he was angry and would not go in. Therefore his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I have been serving you. I never transgress your commandment at any time. And yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours came, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive again, was lost and is found. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this parable. It's so familiar to many of us, Lord, but even many who have never read the Bible recognize it, just didn't know where it came from. I pray that its familiarity would not cause us to lack attention because, uh, Lord, we can never be too familiar with any portion of the Word. And you have new treasures and insights to share with us each time we gather together. And so, Lord, open up our hearts, open up our hearing to receive wonderful truths. We pray it in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. The parable of the prodigal son is not really about the prodigal son. Neither is it about his pouting brother. I suggest to you that it is about their father. He is the central character around which the entire story revolves and upon whom it focuses. His actions and reactions are the stuff that would have most affected 
Jesus' original audience. The actions and reactions of the Father were most unusual. Distributing his goods to them early was most unusual in that it was unwise. You see how the prodigal son wasted his goods, and you see how the pouting brother resented his. Running to meet his returning prodigal son was most unusual in that it was undignified. Honorable old men did not run at all, and neither did they openly embrace even a son who was covered in filth. Rushing out to comfort his pouting son was most unusual in that it was unconditional. Instead of demanding that his older son change his attitude, he reasoned with him and left the decision whether to come to the party open-ended. He was a most unusual father, not at all what you would expect. Jesus intended the parable to represent your heavenly father as a most unusual father, not at all what you would expect. What can we say about our Heavenly Father after reading this amazing tale? We'll organize our thoughts around two points. Number one, you have a Father in Heaven who runs to receive you. And number two, you have a Father in Heaven who rushes to revive you. First of all, we'll look at verses 11:24, where you see that you have a Father in Heaven who runs to receive you. This parable of the phenomenal Father really is the last in a series of three in this chapter. We looked at the lost sheep and the lost coin last time we were together. All three answer a complaint of the religious leaders when they said about Jesus, you can read it in verse 2, this man receives sinners and eats with them. All three parables explain that it is precisely to receive sinners that Jesus came into the world. But more than that, all three parables describe the joy of your heavenly Father any time and every time a sinner is saved. The Jewish leaders had their own ideas about God. They portrayed him not as a phenomenal father, but as a strict taskmaster. In their minds, God was pleased whenever a sinner perished from the planet, getting what they deserved by being sent to Hades to suffer. They considered themselves righteous, performing all the required tasks that earned them the right to go to heaven. So Jesus crafted this most beloved of parables. In it, he introduced a prodigal son to represent the sinners that were seeking him for salvation. And he introduced a pouting son to represent the Pharisees and scribes that were upset at the grace and mercy of God in saving sinners. The focus remained on the father who loved them both because he loves us all. And so let's take a closer look at the prodigal beginning again in verse 11 and 12 where it says, A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. You received your father's goods when you died, or when he died, excuse me. So when you're, this is like an inheritance. To ask for them early was, in a sense, to wish he were already dead. Maybe it's too strong to say that the prodigal wished his father dead, but he certainly did not care for his father's life. He wanted away from the father's farm and house. From the father's point of view, he may have well wished him dead because all the prodigal thought about was getting away from him. Now, we can easily identify with the prodigal. Many of us growing up 
couldn't wait to get out of the house. We, we felt like our parents were stifling and old-fashioned and they didn't understand what was happening in the world anymore. And, and we looked forward to getting out and away from them and on our own. And many of us were beyond that, just that feeling. We had a, a positive rebellion. And we gave our parents fits with the activities that we involved ourselves in, uh, sometimes criminal, uh, you know, but otherwise just rebelling. And so we immediately identify with these rebellious sons and daughters. But that's probably why we think the parable is mostly about the prodigal son. In the Jewish culture of the first century, it was the father's reaction that would have stunned Jesus' hearers. The fact that he complied with the request would have blown their minds. And so it wasn't that there was a rebellious son. That was sad, but not uncommon. It was that the father heeded and gave in to this rebellion and allowed his goods to be parted. Notice, too, that it says the father divided it to them. Apparently, he gave both of his sons their inheritance at this time. You'll want to keep that in mind for later when we encounter the brother. And so verse 13, and not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. As soon as he could, the younger son split the scene. The words far country mean he went outside of Jewish territory into Gentile land. That's where the action was. That's where it was really happening, where you could really spread your wings and fly and learn a little bit about the world. Prodigal means wasteful. He wasted his possessions with wasteful living. Some of your Bibles have it translated riotous, and that's an allowable translation, but it really just generally means wasteful. Now, we automatically think that he wasted his goods on immoral activities. After all, doesn't his brother say he has devoured his livelihood with harlots? The older brother had no idea what his younger brother had been doing. He didn't care at all about his younger brother, didn't follow his activities. And anyway, he was away in a far country. Nowhere in this text are you told specifically that the prodigal son wasted his inheritance on immoral activity. He may have, don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to make him sound better than he is, but he may not have. It's interesting to me that we refer to getting loaded or drunk, how? As getting wasted. How many of you are familiar with that term? How will you all admit that? You've heard that before. I always have to ask these things because my wife afterwards, she says, Gene, no one knows what you're talking about. That, that no one's used that term since 1950, you know, or something. But I remember we could always gauge our weekends when we get back to high school or college and you say, hey, how, how was your weekend? Man, I got so wasted. And that was like, oh, yeah. That was, I mean, if you could get to the level of being wasted, you had arrived. It's all you live for is to find a way to be wasted. And, and that's the same meaning here, you know, in, in one sense. that you. But it doesn't have to be an immoral activity. Before you come to Jesus, many of you waste your substance and yourself on immoral things. But many of you also wasted your substance and yourself on many refined activities. You know, you can waste money and time and effort on a lot of good things. Or things that are neutral, anyway. And I only bring this up because we have a tendency to not see ourselves in the Bible. If, if I only see the prodigal son as, as some gutter-dwelling slime, 
who was wasted all the time. I might not be able to identify. Well, I can, but you may not be able to identify with that. You might have been a regular, normal, moral person. Still not a Christian, but you might have wasted your time, effort, and energy on other things. Though they're not looked down upon, they're just as wasteful. It's just as big a waste of time. And so all of us can put in somewhere in identifying with this prodigal. The gospel is not just for people in the gutter. You get that impression sometimes giving or listening to testimonies. The testimonies we're most gripped by are gutter testimonies. I lived my life in the gutter. I had needles sticking out of my body all over the place. Begging for cigarette butts, you know, and all this kind of stuff. But there are a lot of people that are living, you know, in the palaces of the world and in high, you know, these, these penthouses and all that are wasting their life just as badly. Verse 14, but when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. Now, the prodigal ran out of money just as the local economy took a nosedive. It was God's providence for his life. He wasted all of his substance. God allowed it to be an economic downturn so that it would bring him to a place of need and realizing his true need and then recognizing where his true needs could be met. God is always at work trying to reach sinners and bring them into situations by which they might turn and understand their condition. And so verse 15, then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate and no one gave him anything. Pigs were considered an unclean animal under the Jewish law. Now let me give you a little 50-second separate Bible study here this morning about dietary laws in the Old Testament. The whole thing in the Old Testament about foods and what you could eat and what you couldn't eat, it had nothing to do with health and hygiene. A lot of times people say this is the diet that Christians should still be on because God understood, you know, the trichinosis worms and all of these things. And, and so we need to follow these dietary laws if we really want to be healthy. That's not true. God had certain dietary restrictions strictly because he wanted his people to look separate from the other peoples of the world. Today we can eat anything we want that's good for you. There are no dietary restrictions except the ones that you put on yourself for your own personal health reasons. I only say this because a lot of times even Christians come along and they tell you that you're not spiritual because you're eating the wrong way and you're, you know, we need to be under these Old Testament rules and that's just not true. Eat all the pigs you want. <laughs> the other white meat is good for you. Now for a Jew under the Old Testament law to be working with the pigs... This was rock bottom. To add to his spiritual misery, the pigs ate better than he did. And no one showed him any charity. Verse 17, But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants." The parable, again, is about the father. The thinking of the prodigal reveals the Jewish attitude towards God. First of all, if he was a father at all, he was a distant father. Second, 
He had to be approached cautiously with rehearsed words. And third, you are not worthy to be in his presence. Maybe you could serve him and perhaps earn a position. Where did people get such horrible ideas about God? Well, they got them from their teachers, the Pharisees and scribes. But regardless where they got their ideas about God, Jesus is about to blow the lid off of centuries of misunderstanding about the nature of God. And so verse 20, he arose and came to his father, but when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. The first thing you note is that the father was daily looking for his son and desiring his return. He had no idea that his son was ever going to return, no inclination that he would. Everything was rebellion and I want to get away from you. And yet every day the father held out hope that his son would return and every day he was looking for him. Then you see that when he returned, he received his son just as he was. In other words, that you know, the son, he didn't see him a far way off and send a servant and say, Hey, dad, your dad is glad you're on your way back. Could, could you go into the local inn and clean yourself up a little bit? You stink like pig, and it would be really embarrassing if you came home like this, if people knew that you'd been feeding pigs, and we don't want to bring you know, a bad name on your father's house, and so could you, could you clean yourself up a little bit and then you know, sneak in the back door and we'll act like you've been home for a while. He didn't do that. I suggested earlier that for the father, running was undignified. It shows the depth of his compassion. It also may have been necessary the prodigal had been a rebellious son. According to Jewish law, he deserved to be stoned to death. If you had a rebellious son, you could take him out to the elders of the city and, and prove his rebellion, and then they picked up stones and, and stoned him to death. And so I'm telling you right now that the people who lived around there weren't happy with this prodigal son and what he had done to his father. Regardless how the father dealt with it, they probably thought he was just being a pansy and that he should have had his son stoned. And when this kid came back, there was at least the possibility that he would not have been received and he may have been pelted with rocks in their culture. And so the father runs out, hugs him, kisses him, and embraces him and walks in this embrace with him. If you're going to stone the son, you're going to have to stone the father as well. He was there to shield and to protect him. Verse 21, and the son said to him, <clears throat> Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight and am no longer worthy to be called your son. Now I did it that way because it's a formal rehearsed prayer. He, he's sitting there in the pig pen. He's thinking, you know, I've got to get back and, and, and I'll, I'll, what could I say that would really reach my father? And so he comes up with this and he's rehearsing it along the way. So when his father comes, even though his dad is kissing him and loving him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight and no longer worthy to be called your son. And I, I, he probably repeated it, you know. I mean, what is it about formal prayers? I, I'm, I'm real sensitive to this because I still have formal prayers ringing around in my head that I can't get rid of. And they just, they come up at the worst time. Every, you know, whenever I'm watching football and they say, they're going to try a Hail Mary, I think, oh. <laughs> I can still recite that whole prayer. The act of contrition. All these different things. Formal prayers. Now, are all formal prayers bad? No. 
we make them bad because we bring them in and we think, okay, we do. And so, you know, you're drinking coffee, saying your formal prayer, you're doing, you're multitasking now because you can do your formal prayer while you're surfing the internet, you know, and stuff. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be that, woo. <laughs> Bless me, Father, I have said, oh, yeah, oh. I'm going to snipe that item on eBay, you know, and stuff. And, and so it's crazy. And so this, he's got this formal prayer. And one thing you do see here is that the father doesn't really care about a formal prayer. Think of it. Think of the father and rushing out to his son. What does he want to hear? Maybe nothing. Maybe just weeping or, or I'm so sorry or anything. He doesn't want to hear this nonsense. Father, I have sinned. You know, and all that. And, and so you just have to bear that in mind as we pray. We just want to talk to God. God sees your heart. So you may as well speak to Him informally as you would to your earthly father. Now, you know, I get in trouble here because, you know, yes, God is to be revered. Of course, He's the almighty ruler and master of the universe. We sing that song. I love that line in that song we sing where rulers will crawl before His throne. Now, don't you love that? I know, you know, the scripture says every knee will bow and every tongue confess, but really some of those guys are going to crawl before the throne. You know, they're just going to be so low and I'm into that. I love it because God is so great and stuff, but, but God is your father and he wants you to have a relationship with him like a father would have with his son or, or daughter, not a formal blown out relationship. Maybe some of you have real formal relationships. But I'll tell you what, you know, a lot of times it's kind of, you know, people universally, they say, man, I, I wish I'd had a better relationship with my dad. Some of you, your dad wasn't around for various reasons. You know, maybe he died or, or uh, was taken from you some other way. Maybe he left. You know, and others just, maybe you had abusive fathers or your father just didn't cut the, you know, meet the standard or whatever it was. But if you think about having a relationship with your dad, is it on this level? Man, I wish that I could have said formal words to my father. I wish I could have gone into my father's workplace and said, Oh, father, how art thou? And we could have had like a real King James kind of understanding between the two of us. Well, no, you want your dad to take you places and do things with you and give you noogies and, you know, things like that. And Jesus is saying, you have that kind of father. You just refuse to realize it. The father said to his servants, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. And bring that fatted calf here and kill it. And let us eat and be merry. It's a great picture of salvation. Sinners are described in the Bible. If you were to stand before God as a sinner, it would be as if you were dressed in the filthiest garments you could imagine. Just, you would just... Okay, I'm on my way to see God. By the time you get there, you've been through a cesspool, swam through a sewer, and now you're presenting yourself before God. Hi, God. And that's how you look before a perfect, holy God. Well, you're in trouble. It's beyond dry cleaning. I mean, you're in big trouble. Then the Bible says, now, if you'll turn by faith to Jesus Christ, He removes those garments from you, cleanses you, and gives you a robe of righteousness. And because of that gift of His grace, now you can stand in the presence of God. And so it's a beautiful way of seeing uh, salvation. The ring was a signet ring, and it indicated that you had all the power and position of your Father. When you get saved, 
Everything that, that is God's belongs to you and it's given to you as a gift. You don't earn it, it's given to you. And then finally, slaves went barefoot. Getting sandals meant you were a son, not a slave. And so all of these are very symbolic culturally and spiritually. Apparently they always had a fatted calf hanging around for just that special occasion. You know, you probably, some of you gals that like to entertain, you have, you know, your special uh, offering that's just right there in the freezer. Oh, hey, I'll kill the fatted cow. In your case, it's lasagna, but, you know, whatever it might be to really entertain. It simply indicates that there was joy and partying over the return of the sinner. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. The extent of salvation is illustrated by these contrasts. From lost to found, from dead to alive. We also use darkness to light. It's just, you know, the, the extent of it is amazing. Now this is about the Father and it illustrates for you your heavenly Father. He runs to receive sinners. Does that seem unusual? unwise, undignified, unconditional? You bet it does. But this is Jesus telling you what your heavenly Father is like. And so though I may even have a hard time accepting it, I mean, I don't even know how to think about God sitting on His throne, getting up and running to save sinners. I mean, it's, it's, I don't even want to see that in a sense. But Jesus says, look, no one knows the Father like I do, and I'm here to tell you about Him He's like the Father in this parable. And if you're a sinner, if you'll turn, He will run to receive you. And it almost doesn't even matter what you say if your heart has turned towards Him. He'll kiss you and bring you into His family and all of these things. And we need to have this understanding of who God is. Two questions suggest themselves. Number one, is that how you picture God the Father? And number two, is that how you portray God the Father? Very important questions. Many of us have a hard time picturing God that way. A lot of us have a hard time portraying Him that way. We portray Him uh, as angry, upset, bummed out, about ready to kill people if they don't turn and repent. And, and though there is judgment upon sin, don't get me wrong, we need to portray God as He desires to be portrayed. The answer to both those questions, by the way, is yes. Uh, you, you need to picture God as a father and portray God as a father. And so Jesus was addressing the complaint of the Pharisees and scribes, and so He next is going to put them in the story. You have a father in heaven who rushes to revive you. Up to this point, you've almost forgotten there was an older brother, but He's going to play a very prominent role. He's going to represent the Pharisees and scribes with their extremely bad attitude. Now this older son, verse 25, was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come. And because he has received him safe and sound, your dad has killed the fatted calf. But he was angry and would not go in. He was immediately exposed. The older brother had left his father without ever leaving the farm. All of his outward service and dignity were a cloak for a heart full of anger. Spiritually speaking, his garments were just as filthy as his brother's. Only his were sins of the spirit, 
rather than outward rebellion. The older brother's attitude was every bit as deadly and ugly as any of his younger brother's sins. Up till now, as I said, we've forgotten him. But if you think about him, you think, well, he's a model son. They split the inheritance and he decides to stay in his father's house and continue to be under his father's roof and and to help his father and never, you know, he just he's the guy that you want to be in this story until his brother comes back and then he immediately is revealed for what's happening below the surface. Sure, his brother left the farm. He stayed on the farm, but he was just as far from his father. Verse 28, he was angry and wouldn't go in. Therefore, his father came out and pleaded with him. Now, I would have said to one of my servants, you tell him to get in here right now, and if he doesn't, I want you to goad him with an ox goad and get him in here. You tell him that if he doesn't get in here right now, I'm taking the keys to the chariot away from him. I mean, this guy is the father. Do you understand? I mean, this is a, and this is a culture where you know, fathers were held in high esteem and high regard, and this father especially. I mean... You didn't say no to your father. When your father said, hey, get in here for the party, and, and you, you didn't send a message that said, forget you. I mean, this was serious stuff. So he rushes out to him, and he answered and said to his father, verse 29, listen, all these years I've been serving you. and never transgressed your commandment at any time. You never gave me a goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours came, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed a fatted calf for him. This is like every rebellious conversation you've ever heard if you're a parent. It's just different issues. I mean, he is really upset. Now, let's listen carefully to his comments. First of all, he says, These many years I've been serving you. The word for serving in verse 29 indicates slavery. He considered working for his father involuntary slavery. On the surface, wow, what a great guy. Got his inheritance, but stayed and helped his father out. In his heart, he thought that his father treated him like a slave, was a cruel taskmaster. Then he claimed he had never done anything wrong. No one can claim that. That's absurd. This is pure self-righteousness. And then we learn that he found no joy in his father's house, never had a party, and he blamed it on his dad. He said, you wouldn't even kill a goat for me. And the father's answer indicates he could have all the parties he want. He didn't ask because he didn't think that his father was into it. And then he resented sinners, even his own brother, who he couldn't bring to call himself his brother. He says, this son of yours is back. He even accused his brother of sins that he may not have committed. These comments are intended to paint a picture of the warped religion of the Pharisees and scribes. It describes a religion of works by which you believe you can earn your righteousness and say, I'm not doing anything wrong. But in such a religion, God is a taskmaster, not your father. You are a slave. There is no joy. You go around thinking you are better than others and accusing them of their supposed sinfulness. This is why the religious leaders, or this is what the religious leaders had done to their Hebrew scriptures. It is what they believed and what they taught. How very, very sad for them and for those who heard them. It is all too possible to read and study all about God, but misunderstand the material. I mentioned to you before, these guys, 
These were smart, scholarly men, scribes and Pharisees, probably had the entire Hebrew scriptures memorized, studied it all the time. That's all they did is study the scriptures. And yet it had somehow led them to this erroneous conclusion about God. You must approach your reading and studying about God from the point of view that he loves you as a father with an everlasting love. Your perspective or where you start is important. And we all have a natural tendency because of our sin uh, to be feeling distant from God. And when God receives us into his forever family, we sometimes, you know, have these weird psychobabble ideas that, well, I'm not worthy and I'm such a sinner. And, you know, God is this immense presence and dwelling in pure white light. And so, you know, the best I can do is grovel along and, and uh, every day I'm blowing it. And then sometimes we hear messages like that. You know, we, we go to church hoping to hear that God is maybe more loving than we thought. And instead we find out how much we're blowing it all the time. Didn't give enough, didn't pray enough, didn't come to church enough, didn't witness to anybody. What a loser. Well, a complete loser. But I know this is the truth, and where else am I going to go? So I'll come back and figure out what big loser I am next week, you know, and or maybe I'll start trying to do some things, but because I'm doing them in my own energy, they fall apart and they fail and there's no joy in my life. And I'm telling people to come to God and have joy when I realize there is no joy. And it's a, it's a terrible thing. You have to gain God's perspective. And, and this is one of the beautiful things about Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I have come to reveal to you the Father. You can't really know what the Father is like. You have all your weird ideas, whether it be from theology, whether it be from your old nature, whether it be from your earthly father. Wherever you get your ideas about God as a father from, you need to put those aside and you need to see my relationship with God as a father. You need to listen to what I've said about him as a father. And that is the truth. That is who God is. That is your heavenly father. And I'm telling you that he runs to receive you. If you think that's undignified, then you need to get over that. If you think it's unwise, you need to forget about that. If you think it's unconditional, you've forgotten that Jesus died so that the Father could run to receive you. And he rushes out to revive you when you're blowing it after you've been saved. Instead of seeing God as a cruel or even a benevolent taskmaster, they should have sought him as their father. He rushes out even to people confused with religion and wants to revive them. Jesus was holding out hope for these Pharisees and scribes. They could still know God as their father. And this is why the parable is left open-ended without a final solution. He said to them, verse 31, Son, you are always with me and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make Mary and be glad for your brother was dead and is alive again, was lost and is found. You're not told the reaction of the older brother. It ends right there. Did he repent? Did he experience revival? Well, it's a parable. It's being spoken to the Pharisees and scribes. And Jesus, for all their hatred of Jesus, for all their uh, opposition to him, for all their hanging around on the outside of this beautiful thing that he's doing and saving people and healing people and putting in their you know, two cents, and always trying to bring people down. Jesus tells this story, and the end of it is this. You guys are outside of the kingdom of heaven, pouting. 
You have this attitude, but I've come to receive you as well. I've rushed over to you. If you will just write your heart and be revived, you too can come into the kingdom of God. The compassion and the grace of Jesus Christ, it's amazing. It's tremendous. Jesus was on earth offering the kingdom of heaven to the Jews. Even though the Jews were God's chosen nation, individual Jews needed to believe in Jesus by faith and be saved. No one saved by birth or by background. They needed to be born again, every one of them, whether they were sinners or scribes. Many sinners were coming to the Lord to be saved. Most of the religious leaders were not. And as I said a moment ago, they were working against him. So Jesus told them this series of parables about God seeking those who are lost. Now, when it comes to people, God is seeking you, but you also have a decision to make. God is sovereign, and he will arrange providence to reach you with the gospel. He'll arrange circumstances in your life so that you will be at a point where you could receive the gospel, but he also will respect your free will to choose and decide if you're going to turn to him or not. Now, these parables have this application to you and I. First of all, if you're a Christian, as I mentioned earlier, you're going to want to portray God as a phenomenal father who is seeking to save sinners. You want to check yourself to be certain you have none of the weird ideas of the older brother and that you have none of his bad attitude. And, and this is significant and serious because a lot of times as Christians, we do develop over time bad attitudes, whether it's because we hear teaching that, that puts God in a bad light or, or whatever. We have a tendency always to move over to the area of legalism, rules and regulations. It's hard for us to portray God as a God of grace. We think that grace is, is not sufficient, enough, uh, you know, significant. Grace is love in action. God loves the whole world. His grace is that he sent Jesus Christ to die for you, that if you would receive him, you could have eternal life. There's nothing insignificant about it. But a lot of times we fall over on this legalistic side. We become like Pharisees. We, as I mentioned last week, we tend to look down on sinners. The, the special group of sinners that we seem to hate the most as Christians nowadays are homosexuals. Is homosexuality a sin? Sure, absolutely, you betcha. Is anger a sin? Absolutely, you betcha. So who's worse off, the angry man or the homosexual? Well, they're both going to die and go to hell if they don't get saved. I don't hear anybody saying, let's get all the angry people together and put them on an island somewhere. <laughs> Officer, why am I being pulled over? Because you were angry. You're being shipped to an island. <laughs> the island of angry men and women. We're trying to purge our culture of sin. You know, that kind of a thing. And we, we you know, we can have a bad attitude, believe me. If upon self-examination you find you are more like the older brother, know that God has rushed out to revive you. And all you need to do is admit it and come in and enjoy the party. Maybe you're not a Christian. You should identify with the younger son, the prodigal son. You want to do your own thing. You may or, not, may, or may not be doing immoral things, but your life is being wasted because you haven't discovered the giver of life or your purpose for living if you're not a Christian. Maybe you are wasting yourself or getting wasted. Maybe it was hard for you to come this morning. Your head is just splitting from your hangover. Or you're a little bit fidgety right now because you, 
you need to go smoke some pot or whatever it is that you're into. Hey, I, wh- this is the world we live in, folks. I don't know what you think is going on in the world. Or maybe you're kind of a refined sinner. You're, you think that, oh, I should go to church, I should find a church, and after today, I, f- I should really find a church. <laughs> you know. Hey, listen, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are wasted. And you're wasting your life and all that God could use. And you know, it's interesting, it's too bad there's a chapter break here between this and chapter 16, because next time we're together, Jesus tells a parable that goes with this about how to not waste your life on trivial things. So whether you're moral or immoral, your life is being wasted if you're not a Christian. You might have even tried religion. You might be doing that now, coming to church thinking that it's a religion. It didn't help you and it won't. You need to understand that if you repent of your sin, God is looking for you and He will run to receive you into His kingdom. And with halting, stumbling words or with just sobbings that no one can interpret but God, He will embrace you with the love of Jesus Christ and receive you forever as His son or daughter. That's the God of the Bible. Let's pray. Lord, You're the God of the Bible and You're the only true God. You're thrice holy. You're magnificent, almighty in power, majesty. But you're also our Father. And you want us to relate to you as sons and daughters would relate to the greatest, most phenomenal Father that ever existed. Without losing respect or reverence, Lord, in fact, by gaining it, we come into your presence as your dearly loved children. Set us free, Lord, to enjoy the merriment of the Christian life. This chapter is filled with parties filled with laughter and singing and dancing and making merriment. May that characterize us in the tabernacle of our heart when we gather together as a church, when we're around one another, even when we're in the world. May joy, the joy of our salvation, spill over and around us so that others are drawn to you. Not because you're a cruel taskmaster who's going to destroy them, but because you're a loving father who is seeking to draw them so that they don't ever have to meet you as judge, so that you never have to pass sentence upon them. We want to enjoy you, Lord. Change our thinking, our perspective if necessary. Remind us every time we read your word to read it as if you're our Father writing stories to us, Lord, and that they are meant to encourage and strengthen and edify and build us up. And Lord, I do pray that if there's any here today that don't know you as their Savior, Lord, that they would see the waste of their life. Even if they've accomplished some things, Lord, it's all going to burn. It's all a pile of rubbish. But for your name, but for your help, draw them to yourself, we pray, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's stand together. Some of the guys will be here to pray with you after the service. Love to see you on Wednesday night. We're going through the book of Joshua. Good time to be refreshed and encouraged, get to meet some people. Fill out your survey, get it to us, breakfast burritos. It doesn't get any better than this. God bless you.